Before we get started, I want to make two announcements. First, we shared an interview with Marcus West. His class, Into the Darkest Places, Working with Early Relational Trauma and Borderline States of Mind, is now open for registration. It will be Friday, December 13th, 2019, from 9 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. More information about that course is available on our website. If you would like to hear the interview with Marcus, listen to our August episode of this podcast. Second, this episode is in celebration of our holiday giving drive. We will be unlocking a full seminar by Polly Young Eisendraft, which I'll talk about more in a moment. If you participate in the drive at the supporter level or above, your name will be read in the credits of this podcast for all of 2020. More information about the drive is available through the link in the show notes. I also want to announce that as part of the holiday giving season, we will be having a Cyber Monday sale on December 2nd. Usually we have a holiday sale at the end of the year, and this year we're doing a Cyber Monday sale wherein we will give 40% off rather than the usual 20%. 40% off just for that day. And afterwards, our holiday sale will continue through the end of the year. Uh, if you forget the date or uh, need more information about that, you can always check the store page on our website. Thanks. Welcome to the Jung Anthology Podcast, analytical psychology seminars from the archives of the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. Gather up your brokenness, love, perfection, and human ideals, part one. In celebration of our holiday-giving drive, we are unlocking a full seminar by Polly Young Eisendrath. This episode is the first half of Gather Up Your Brokenness. The second half will be published later this month. In the poetic tradition of Zen monk and bard Leonard Cohen, this presentation celebrates our brokenness. Often, we hear about grieving our mistakes, failures, losses, and imperfections, but rarely do we learn how to mine them for their richness. Because human beings are naturally broken, with the personalities that are largely unconscious, reactive, and hard to manage, we have countless opportunities in our relationships and work to see ourselves in the cracks of the mirror. This presentation will draw on Carl Jung's psychology of individuation and on the Buddha's teachings on awakening to offer a new vision of imperfection with its inherent openings to compassion and love. It was recorded in December 2016. Polly Young Eisendrath, PhD, is Clinical Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Vermont Medical College. She is a psychologist and Jungian analyst practicing in the mountains of central Vermont, where she lives and writes. She has published 13 books, many chapters and articles that have been translated into 14 languages. Her books include The Self-Esteem Trap, Raising Confident and Compassionate Kids, in an age of self-importance. 
the resilient spirit, transforming suffering into insight and renewal. The gifts of suffering, a guide to resilience and renewal. Women and desire, beyond wanting to be wanted. And you're not what I expected, learning to love the opposite sex. You can follow links in the show notes to other seminars by Polly Young Eisendraft and links to support our holiday giving campaign. So please consider me walking around among you. <laughs> and, you know, I, I always like to make it clear when I'm speaking with a group that we're here together. I need you as much as you need me. And that means that if you have questions about what I'm saying, certainly if you can't hear something or you didn't understand something, please ask me right away. Don't just drift around in a confusion. Um, because without you, uh, it's sort of stupid for me to be here. And uh, um, I'm going to say a few things to try to set the stage for uh, the conversation that we're going to have together. And then I'm going to use these PowerPoint slides. And uh, it, please uh, you know, feel free to take notes if you want to, because some people need to. But you don't have to in that the slides can be available to you. And they do summarize some of the things that I'm going to say, not everything, but some of it. So, you know, today I am going to be setting out a framework or a frame of reference for looking at our lives and our relationships. And this is a frame of reference that owes a lot to Leonard Cohen, who, though he was not a personal friend of mine, uh, was a fellow practitioner of Zen, Am I doing something wrong no, already? No, it's not you. We actually we turned it up really high. Just so usually the problem is it's too low. How does that sound to you guys? Are you getting it? Too low. Too low. Needs to go up. Uh, guy in the back row says very good, but okay. you, you thought it was too loud. Okay. So you know, one of the <laughs> this is a great teaching moment because a lot of what I have to say about relationship is how we have our own perceptions. And um, it's really true. We have different ears and eyes. But uh, just to try to get a consensus on this, does this seem to work? Everybody in the back can hear. And also, if for some reason you want to carry your your chair up to the front and kind of fill in in the front, that's fine with me too. I'm, I'm used to actually being more on the floor. So back to this idea of Leonard Cohen and brokenness. So Leonard Cohen was a fellow Zen practitioner, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about my background in a moment, but first I would like to set the stage from Leonard's perspective. You probably know he died on November 7th, and um, he did that very intentionally. He fell during the night, decided not to go to the hospital, went back to bed and died. Now, he was was in a process of decline, even though he had lived very fully up to the last three years. I saw him at Madison Square Garden when he was 79 doing a four-hour concert, and he was full of energy. Uh, But he, I think, probably had multiple myeloma. It hasn't been announced officially, but it looked that way to me. So when he fell during the night, he decided not to go to the hospital, and he died that night. 
uh, as quite a few people said, he always knew when to leave the party, and the next day was the election. So, um, but a little bit about Leonard is that uh, Leonard was a complicated dude, and he was very, very interested in our being able to live with what Jung would call the opposites. I would call it conflict. And Leonard called it two kinds of love. And uh, he very much felt that whatever was going on between people that caused hatred or difficulty, it needed actually to be solved by love. And the way that I'm going to talk about love today is to, to uh, contrast it with desire and idealization. And I'm going to talk about love in terms of our ability to accept reality, the reality of the beloved, and the reality of ourselves, with all of our brokenness and limitations. And that that brokenness and that those limitations are at the very essence of who we are as human beings. They open our hearts to compassion and care. And when they are seen directly as openings, we can join with that limitation and actually become a part of the way that it transforms. So uh, to begin with, I'm going to quote from the beginning of a song that we'll hear at the end today. It's called Come Healing. It's from Leonard's album, uh, Old Ideas. I don't know how many, how many of you follow the Leonard Cohen scene, like about half of you? Well, I've got you. Uh, how many of you do some mindfulness practice, some kind of mindfulness or meditation more than follow Leonard? And how many of you are familiar with Jung? Okay. Okay. Good. Um, I try not to use special terminology, but I will be introducing some, but uh, I think I'll be defining it. So uh, if, if I confuse you about anything, ask me right away. So come healing. The opening stanza, gather up your brokenness and bring it to me now. The fragrance of those promises you never dared to vow. The splinters that you carry, the cross you left behind. Come healing of the body, come healing of the mind. Now, if you know Leonard's music and you know his orientation, which really comes very much from Zen and Judaism, uh, he believed that if you try to live your life as a hero, that creates a tremendous problem. That as soon as possible, you need to recognize that you're defeated. And then you need to learn how to live with defeat because it's the nature of human life to be limited, to be imperfect, to be impermanent, and to cause heartbreak and difficulty. This is the nature of the world that you live in. It's not your parents' fault. It wasn't because you were raised in a particular environment. So a lot of what I'll be teaching today is this framework that comes from Buddhist teachings about the imperfection of the world that we're living in, what you might call the mundane world or the consensual reality in which we live. So when Leonard says, gather up your brokenness and bring it to me now, it reminds me very much of what psychotherapists say, that we say, you know, bring the brokenness here. We are going to serve as a witness. 
And what we will see as we move through this presentation is that that witnessing that the therapist does feels like love. And this is what we have a hard time doing in our kitchens and living rooms, even we therapists, to be able to stay interested, to stay with, to stay concerned. When your partner, spouse, grown child, uh, parent does something that is so antithetical that you cannot imagine why they did that. You cannot see why they did that. So again, just to set the stage a little bit further in regard to Leonard, I want to read a little something that some of you may have read um, from the New York Times. It came out the other day, I think two days ago. And um, it's a, a piece called An Ode to Leonard Cohen uh, from a fellow Zen monk. Um, and uh, I am reading this just to help you see the framework of brokenness that he was conveying and to get the seriousness of this, how it doesn't mean just a little bit of brokenness. So the guy writing the piece, he says, I was the head monk at the monastery. This is the monastery in Mount Baldy, California. And I was approached, and I approached Leonard at the end of a long day to ask him how his back was. He was short, thin, and old, but he sat still like a rock in the Zendo meditation hall. I don't feel a thing, he said, and I nodded. Your meditation must be really strong. He shook his head and said, Oxycontin. <laughs> then he looked into my eyes with a clear, almost startled expression and, say, and said, Hey, I love your book. The guy had just le left a manuscript for him on his desk. How can I help? I refused all his generous offers but, but one, and he wrote the books forward. He had a decades-long relationship with our teacher, the Roshi, and it was my privilege to witness these two powerful men make relationship, as Roshi would say. I think Roshi liked having Jikan, was Leonard's name, his Zen name, around because Jikan did not make any demands on him. Jikan means silence. They could just sip tea in silence. Once people start talking, they inevitably start fighting, Roshi said. One afternoon, Roshi was 106 years old by then, diminished by age and a sex scandal that devastated our community and his reputation. He had an accident in his adult diapers. As I took Roshi to the bathroom, Jikan filled a basin with warm water, removed his suit coat and cufflinks, and rolled up his crisp white sleeves. Jikan, I can do that part, I said. I wouldn't think of it, he said. I helped Roshi stand while Jikan knelt behind him and gently wiped him clean. Watching Jikan serve our teacher, unobsequiously and with intelligence, care and respect, helped take the sting out of my own failures as a writer and as a man. You learn that there is something greater than artistic success when you see a great artist humbling himself. Jikan, like any good monk, was devoted to what his teacher was devoted to. He and Roshi had a similar project, a shared vision. Roshi taught it, Leonard sang it. With none of Leonard's eloquence or Roshi's wisdom at my disposal, I would describe it as the union of contrary things. And then their separation again, and then the struggle in between. In different ways, 
they each gave their lives to breaking and maintaining silence on what Buddhists call the great matter <clears throat> and what Roshi called true love. Was, was Leonard an artist consumed by despair? No, his work was shot through with the opposite of despair. But in Leonard's world, the opposite of despair was not hope, it was clarity. From this clarity came the vision of a prophet. I've seen the world future, sorry, I've seen the future, brother, and it is murder. If you know that song by Leonard, I've seen the future and it is murder. The penultimate time I saw Jikan, I was getting lunch on Larchmont Street with an old friend from my Hollywood screenwriting days. I had given him a copy of my book, and the only thing that impressed it about, uh, impressed, the only thing about it that impressed him was, hey, dude, I can't believe you know Leonard Cohen. We left the pizza parlor, turned the corner, and who should be sitting at a table outside a burger restaurant but G-Con Leonard Cohen himself. He had an office nearby, and we spent the afternoon brainstorming just how to revitalize the monastery now that our teacher was dead. What if you guys put a rifle range up there and get a bunch of young guys <laughs> to shoot, G-Con said. Man, if I were 15 minutes younger, I would join you. Yes, rifles. For all the self-satisfied liberals who want to claim him as one of their own, I'm sorry, but Leonard Cohen belongs to everyone. Once we were waiting in a lobby at the doctor's office and he said, my National Rifle Association hat came in the mail today. I looked at the tag and I couldn't believe it, made in China. <laughs> After I rearranged my, my jaw on my face from its descent to the floor, I said, you're an NRA member? He kept staring straight ahead. Let's keep that between us, he said. I think now of that episode during our current historical moment. <clears throat> I have no idea how Jikan would have voted in the past election, but if there was anyone who could hold both extremes in his hand and heart, it was the man who for the last words on his last album chose these. I wish there was a treaty we could sign. I wish there was a treaty between your love and mine. For an artist informed by a vision of true love, opposite forces and people are just, ju just different kinds of love trying to meet. So that's the attitude that I would like you to keep in mind as we go through the teachings today and we talk about true love and uh, high school, much less graduate from it and uh, from a situation in which there was a lot of violence. There was a lot of difficulty in my home growing up. I did not have by any means the kind of childhood that you would think would produce any kind of contemplative life in adulthood. Uh, what I did have was the presence of mental illness, and uh, my father had borderline personality disorder. Uh, his father had been murdered when he was six, and his mother committed suicide when he was 10. And so it created within his unconscious mind a tremendous amount of confusion and stress. And that became obvious to me by the time I was about eight years old. By the time I was in the ninth grade, I knew I wanted to become a psychoanalyst. Now, mind you, I was living in a working-class neighborhood in Akron, Ohio, and nobody had ever heard of a psychoanalyst. But by some kind of grace, uh, this sort of sort of gates of mercy, I came to understand 
that there was such a thing as psychoanalysis when I was in the ninth grade and I researched it for career day. And so when I stood up to give my talk, I had talked to six psychoanalysts. And I said, this is what I want to be when I grow up. And of course, the school counselor came to me and said, no, you can't do that because you'd have to be a psychiatrist and girls can't be doctors, and so you'll need to be a social worker. Um, and you'll need to be a clinical social worker, which was the frame of reference back then. So I thought, okay, I'll become a clinical social worker. So on my way to trying to understand my father's mental illness, on the way to trying to make sense of all of the miseries and violence I grew up with, I actually had an opportunity to ask a question at a very young age. And that question was, what's going on here anyway? What is going on in this world? How is it that this world is so filled with suffering? And nobody seems to, from my childhood perspective, notice. They don't notice on a day-to-day basis. They don't tend to it. So as I grew up, I became very serious, you might imagine. I was very serious spiritually. I was a Roman Catholic thought I might become a nun, went to a convent in my senior year. I was a very serious student in school. I did everything and did well on the standardized tests and the regular tests. And So there were lots of people who came along to help me with my serious interest in what's going on here anyway. And by the time I got to college, I actually came to believe that... Um, <laughs> that human beings were flawed because of original sin in a way that God would have seen and been compassionate about, compassionate enough not to condemn them eternally for a sin that they might have mistakenly committed. And so I left the Catholic Church because I felt that if I knew this at the age of 19, God certainly knew it, and the Catholics must be wrong. So <laughs> I made the con- conclusion that God and I, we could see that people that, who were really, really suffering, and suffering from the beginning, needed something other than condemnation to be helped. And I began to look around for a religion that was based in experience and not in dogma. Eventually, after quite a search, because I had the, the opportunity in college, I always had lots of opportunities because of the, I think, deep inquiry I started making at a very young age. I had an opportunity to meet at length with Houston Smith. And Houston Smith had made a study of world religions by actually participating in different religions. And so then I began to practice in different settings and look into the various religions. This in itself is a rather long story. I won't go into the details here, but eventually, in 1970, I ended ended up at the Rochester Zen Center in Rochester, New York. By this time, of course, um, I had graduated from college. I was going to uh, study medieval English literature because it seemed to me that it was only in medieval English literature did people really understand at that period of time the importance of living in a conscious universe where everything is conscious, 
where we're not just isolated into little tiny units with a completely unconscious surrounding. So um, I had graduated from college, thought I was going to go into medieval literature, ended up at Rochester Zen Center almost the moment that Philip Kaplow, who was the teacher there, began to speak. I said, this is it. This is what I'm looking for. These people are on to something. I was looking for a religion that was a practice in everyday life, that wasn't something that was set aside for special occasions. I was looking for a religion that asked deep questions without insulting my intelligence and being interested in my answers. I found it in Zen for the first number of years. <clears throat> I, I, uh, I was practicing in a community in which we were not allowed to read anything except for Three Pillars of Zen. We were not allowed to go to personal psychotherapy, and we weren't allowed to kind of move beyond what Kaplow was teaching us. He wanted us to investigate our experience without getting into too much blah, blah. In the end, I came to see what was wrong with that environment and uh, how it was failing many of the people that were living there. And I departed from Kaplow and said, I'm going to go out on my own and make my own way. Again, it's a long story, but a part of that way that I made uh, was to go into personal psychotherapy, eventually Jungian analysis, eventually June Singer, eventually recognizing I wanted to become a Jungian analyst, and then going to uh, Washington University in St. Louis for my doctorate, and uh, then from there became a professor at Bryn Mawr College, and um, continued to develop both developmental psychology, which is what I studied at Washington U, with Jane Lovinger, who directed my dissertation, and then branched out eventually to doing clinical work once I became a Jungian analyst and stayed in Philadelphia until 1994. Uh, during all that time, I practiced a lot with Quakers, uh, and I was looking around in contemplative practices to see what I thought made the most sense, was the most realistic, and brought people around to both living within their daily life and also within their communities. Eventually, I went back to Zen practice in 92. Eventually, I moved on from that. And again, I'm not going to tell you all the details, but I have now studied and practiced um, Soto Zen and Vipassana, if those words mean anything to you. I've studied early Buddhism and also Chinese Buddhism and now I'm actually practicing some Tibetan Buddhism, particularly the practices around conscious dying. In these, say, last uh, 10 years or so, my life, which had come together in a lovely way at the time that Ed Epstein and I moved to Vermont in 1994, we moved into a small retreat center, which is where I live now, which is on the side of a mountain, uh, and I live on about 600 uninhabited acres. I own 11 acres. But we moved to a situation where we could develop our spiritual practice and also have our clinical work. Ed was a therapist. Many, or some of you know him, not many of you, but he used to come with me when I would do my talks, and he and I worked together in doing something called dialogue therapy for couples. When Ed was 54, um, he began to be confused in ways that were hard to understand. Uh, over a period of time that was very confusing for both of us, from about 2004 
until about 2008. Um, he lost functioning in a way that eventually we came to find out uh, was early onset Alzheimer's. And um, in the course of that time, what happened for me personally was very similar to my childhood. I was faced with a set of circumstances that seemed overwhelming. Uh, not only did Ed um, lose his functioning, he lost all of our finances. And that's not unusual for early onset Alzheimer's. He wrote $57,000 worth of checks to himself. He took out $70,000 in credit cards that I didn't know about. He was trying to keep up with a world that was fast fading away from him, and we didn't know what was wrong. In addition to that, he became so preoccupied with his anxiety about details that he could no longer be a witness to me. And it was that early erosion of our relationship before we had a diagnosis that began to teach me about love. In the absence of having a witness, someone who had been my dearest friend every day, someone who was my sexual partner, my partner in business, and my most sort of laughing, big laughing partner that I had in my life, that began to fade in ways that neither of us understood. And so there was a period of time in which I was simply confused. Ed continued to adore me, but he didn't know where I was. He wouldn't ask me a question. He didn't know whether I was sick or not sick. He couldn't remember I had a birthday, much less when my birthday was. And until we had a diagnosis, I don't think either of us were sure what was happening. At the point he was diagnosed, finally, he got a holographic PET scan, and we could see that most of his brain was dead. So the entire uh, frontal cortex and the right hemisphere was completely without um, any lights, the lights that light up on this test. So he had the lights only back here in the back left hemisphere. He was 59 years old at that point, and he was functioning at about the age of 8 to 10 years old. Um, and he was going to go backwards in that functioning. It was like the curious case of Benjamin Button. He kept going backwards. At the point that we had a diagnosis, though, because of my spiritual practice and because of Ed's, we decided to take this as a spiritual practice. And again, I can't go into all the details today. All of the details are in the book, The Present Heart. And believe me, I would never have written a memoir being an analyst if this hadn't happened to me. And I feel that there is much, much, much for people to learn about early onset Alzheimer's, to not be afraid of it under the right circumstances. It is a tremendous spiritual teaching. And so as Ed's ego was erased and he became more and more of an infant, I was the witness. And I was able to work with him and with the community around him, especially in a residential care center, which was really the right place for him to be and where we both enjoyed ourselves. We were able to work with that reversal in aging so that Ed had a happier childhood the second time around than he had had the first time. So in many ways, the last five years of his life were the happiest years of his life. And he was delighted with everything because everything was new. And he repeated everything because everything was new. <laughs> and um, so I'm giving you this setting to say, number one, when everything is broken, and there was a particular moment for me 
when I, I came to know that I had lost, uh, you know, I had more liabilities than I had assets. The, the lawyer, the uh, elder care lawyer that was working with us told me to file for bankruptcy, and the long-term care insurance company sued Ed for lying on the forms. They said that he would have known when he applied that he had memory loss and he had not checked that box. They sued him for $75,000 and rescinded his policy. So we were faced, I mean, really it was I was faced because Ed couldn't take any of this on. Uh, I was faced with essentially the complete bottom falling out of everything I had counted on, of my marriage, this love, my finances. Uh, the only thing I had was my clinical practice and my Buddhist practice. And I kind of sat back and I said, okay, everything's changed, really has changed. I'm going to have to change with it. And from now on, I do not know what is next. And I am having to do something that I've never had to do in my life. I'm having to go forth day by day with a complete uncertainty. So let me pay close attention. And I increased my meditation practice and I began to get up at 4.30 in the morning and record my dreams. And I can tell you that there is a rug beneath the rug. When the rug is pulled out, there is another rug. However, at least for me, I had to let go of knowing anything at all. Anything about anything. It all had to come to me because it was so extreme that it was as though this book had not been written. There was no narrative. I also did not want to go to self-help groups. I was enough around, through my practice, people, caregivers who were overwhelmed and <clears throat> resentful and angry. And I knew I didn't want to do it that way. And I knew also that I'd had all this Buddhist training. So I said to myself, either I'm becoming a nun right now, I'm going to have everything ripped away, and I'll just shave my head and go up the street where my very good friend has a Soto Zen temple where I could live at any point. Or something else is going to happen that I don't know about. And it really was the something else that I don't know about. And that's what the present heart is about. And today we're going to kind of diverge from that story more into the findings of what I found out about love and about the way that brokenness actually opens something but it sometimes is so painful in the opening that people don't look. They don't look at it. They keep going back to their old ways and thinking they can control and thinking they can figure it out. So, so far, is this making sense to you? Making sense? Okay. So um, we're going to now get into the actual presentation. Ah, now one more thing before I start. <laughs> so... In the course of writing The Present Heart, I went around and interviewed a lot of people, and I started reading a lot of contemporary poetry. And I found that a number of poets were especially important to me. Um, and of course, Mary Oliver, everybody knows Mary Oliver is always important. But two Polish poets, uh, and one of them is Wisława Zimborska. I wrote her name on the Zimborska, and she's dead. And... Uh, Cezla uh, Milos is the other one, and we'll hear from him in a moment. But Wisława uh, Zimborska has a poem called True Love. You can look it up online. And here's um, a stanza from the poem. You said that he wrote the, the names of these people somewhere? 
right here, you can't see it. <laughs> In the break, you can look. I can tell you how her name is spelled. The last name is S-Z-Y-M-B-O-R-S-K-A, Zimborska, Vizlava. It looks like Wizlawa, Vizlava. So I, I like this stanza because it gives you a sense, an overview, a framework for what I mean by true love. True love, is it really necessary? Tact and common sense tell us to pass over it in silence, like a scandal in life's highest circles. Perfectly good children are born without its help. It couldn't populate the planet in a million years. It comes along so rarely. Let the people who never find true love keep saying there's no such thing. Their faith will make it easier for them to live and die. So in the way that we've looked at true love up until now, it's been reserved for the rarest of the couples. I had it with Ed. Um, and Ed and I, actually, we were strangers who met on an airplane in 1969. It was like we had known each other forever. Then we lost track of each other. We, we re-met in 1982, and we got together then and stayed together for the rest of his life. So what true love provides is something that I think is provided in psychotherapy with a very good therapist but it's love on a one-way street. When it's in life, it's reciprocal, it's mutual, it's renewable. I think we can learn how to do it. I don't think we, at this point, have very many skills in doing it well, but I think it's possible to learn to love in this way that we can enter again and again with curiosity into being a witness and having a witness. And so that's what I'm going to talk about, and I'm going to talk about that in the context of the brokenness of life and the ways in which we actually fail to love because we assume that life is too ideal. So true love is knowing your beloved well, accepting the beloved as he or she is in reality. It's mutual, reciprocal, egalitarian, deepening an interest in engagement, because it is both mysterious and familiar. Now, when anything is mysterious and familiar, uh, one thinks of God, right? One thinks of what actually abides, which is familiar and mysterious simultaneously. True love is like this. And it also requires mindfulness, empathy, equanimity, emotional maturity, open communication, and truth-telling, all of which fail with early onsets, Alzheimer's. So that last category, when that was removed from Ed's functioning, I began to see the nature of love and be interested in it. So let me just say a few things about, um, I keep thinking I have to look up there, but actually it's right here. <laughs> so when I'm looking here, you're looking there. So when I say know your beloved well, what I mean is that you remain interested in your beloved. And um, there are many ways that people fail at this all the time. But let me give you a really easy example. Your 22-year-old 
son comes home and says, I'm buying a motorcycle. The thing that you should not say is, yikes, do you know how to ride a motorcycle? The thing that you should say is, what kind of motorcycle? If you know your son and you love your son, you're interested in what he's interested in. And in that moment, you overcome your fear in order to be interested in that. Similarly, if you have a spouse that smokes, if you love that spouse, and this is a big if, you overcome your anxiety about the passive smoke. You work with the situation. You perhaps ask that the spouse not smoke in certain areas. But what you don't do, if you know your beloved well, is try to change your beloved from the outside. And many of us do try to change our beloved from the outside. And we feel we're helping the beloved. But this has to do with not knowing the beloved well. If we know the beloved well, we actually do accept the beloved. And I'm talking here now as an end product of true love. There's a process in this. But we accept the beloved as he or she is because we see the range of limitations in reality that this person is working with. Now, if you're a psychotherapist, you know how to do this in your office. You work with this with your patients. You don't say to your patient who is a smoker, you have to stop smoking today or I won't see you in therapy. You don't say to your patient who likes motorcycles, you know, if you, if you ride a motorcycle, I'm not gonna see you in therapy or I'm gonna ask you every day about your helmet or whatever. Uh, now, when we're doing psychotherapy, I call this cherishment, I call it love on a one-way street. We'll talk a little bit more about it. But it happens that we become invested in knowing the other person because we've become a witness, and we've become a witness in a mindful way with a certain sort of sense of containment. I don't know about you, but it's true for me that I actually do come to love all of the people I see long-term in therapy. That's why I have to be careful when I take them at the beginning, because I want to be sure that if I'm going to love them, you know, I'm not going to get in trouble for not turning them into the police if they killed somebody, you know, because I wouldn't turn them into the police. Because I have that dedication to the people that I see long-term in therapy, well, what gives me that dedication? It's simply the witnessing. It's the ability to see that person, know that person well with his or her flaws, with his or her difficulties. You begin to see the context in which that, person, that person's addictions formed, in which that person's suffering began. Your heart opens. There's a natural compassion. There's a natural curiosity. And again, if you're a therapist, you know that. If you're not a therapist, you might wonder, is she nuts saying that? But there are probably other situations in which you know what this kind of love is. If you have a beloved pet, for example, your pet might, in growing old, develop a cancer, be a mess, have difficulties with its you know, bowel continence and so on. But you don't throw the pet out at that point. You continue because you remain interested. So what happens in our love relationships with our grown children, with our parents, 
with our partners especially, that we fail in these areas because we do fail. And there is nothing that fails as badly, in my view, these days as couple relationship. It is on a course of failure. And I believe that is because we don't recognize what's required. So um, when I talk about true love, I'm going to talk about it as reciprocal, love on a two-way street, street. And it is actually then given and taken, and given and taken. So it's like you learn to see yourself through someone else's eyes. And he or she learns simultaneously to see him or her herself through your eyes. And that way of seeing and that way of experiencing things actually ends up feeling like you have a home on earth. And right now, for most educated people, it's very hard to feel that way. It's hard for us to feel that we have a home on earth. It seems like it's getting harder every moment to feel that way. So true love gives us this possibility. It requires certain skills, and we're going to talk about those skills, and those skills have to do with mindfulness, empathy, equanimity, emotional maturity, open communication, and truth-telling. I'm going to define mindfulness. I'll go back to it, but the way I would define mindfulness is the ability to concentrate and pay attention at the same time that you're relaxed. So it gives you an openness towards your experience, the experience that you're interested in. So one component of mindfulness is awareness. I've drawn it as a kind of a fir tree here on the board. It's like the trunk that's going up and down is like the spine that's straight when you're doing mindfulness practice, and it gives you the alert and aware component, the concentration component. And then the limbs of the body are relaxed when you're doing any kind of meditation. Your limbs are relaxed, your spine is straight. The limbs are like the openness, the equanimity, the acceptance, the friendliness towards experience. The up and downness is the concentration, the awareness aspect. So mindfulness is this capacity to pay attention even when it hurts, and to pay attention in an accepting way. Empathy is the ability to step into somebody else's shoes and experience the world from their perspective without losing your own perspective. That is a very high-level developmental skill. There are lots of people who cannot do empathy. Then there's a category of people who have Asperger's or Asperger-ish or Spectrum-ish or whatever-ish type of thing where they don't experience other people's feelings. And then there's another category of people that we call narcissists, which are people who are defended against other people's feelings. They also don't do empathy very well. But even those people can learn to love. They might not be able to learn the empathy part, but they can learn the paying attention part. They can also learn the um, open communication and truth-telling. So open communication and truth-telling is pretty straightforward. It means that you form a bond of trust with your beloved. You tell the truth, but you tell the truth in such a way that conveys an emotional maturity when love is reciprocal. And it takes practice to do that. How can you say what is true and say it in a kind way and saying only what's necessary? 
And that is the practice that goes along with being able to love in a way that is emotionally mature. So, I hope you're getting the picture that true love, in the way I'm talking about it, is not biological. It's not grounded in a secure attachment bond. It's nice if you have secure attachment bonds. It's nice if you grew up in an environment where there were secure attachment bonds. That will allow you to be freer in a number of ways. But it will not necessarily make you a good witness to somebody else. I had, with my mother, a secure attachment bond. My mother, I would say, was one of those earth mothers who was able to to listen to me, to read to me, to cook, to do the everyday tasks, and she was there, and she was interested. But as I became an individual, she did not want to know. She did not want to know about the Zen thing. She didn't want to know about the marrying the Jewish men thing. She didn't want to know about the leaving the Catholic Church thing. And as I got older and this all got more complex, she didn't want to know any of it, ever. (laughs) And every time I visited her, if I would say, ta-ta, she would go, no, not interested in that. Don't tell me about that. She went on being a Catholic. It broke her heart that I left the Catholic Church And that was that. That was the finish of me. And even when she was dying, um, my mother actually could not remember my name. And I would tell her, Mom, it's Polly. And she would say, I know Vicky. Vicky was her sister's name. So she never stepped back from that. She was a very strong woman. And I came to admire her ferocity in not loving me. I mean, she was just not going to bend. And um, so she was good at attachment bonds. But she's bad at being a witness. And I know many people like that. She was not unusual. In fact, there's a whole group of mothers out there, and it included me for a while, too, who go, like, don't tell me that. You know? And once their kids get to be older and go out on motorcycles and become a libertarian, like my son is a conservative libertarian right now, um, and you, know, you kind of go, like, no, don't tell me that. But uh, that is not the loving response. That is not the response that makes you a witness. That's the response of your own anxiety. Now, so if, if love were uh, based on biological instinct that's rooted in survival, it would not be so difficult for people to practice it. In fact, true love is not necessary for procreation, mating, or protecting our children, which I hope you're clear about, Bart. So true love is not the same as, and I'm simply mentioning all this, because a part of the reason why I, um, I decided to write another book about love, I have written a lot of books about love. I started out writing a book called Hags and Heroes, and that was a Jungian approach to feminist psychotherapy for couples. It was about love. I wrote that one when I was 33, 34 years old. And then I wrote another version of that in a book called You're Not What I Expected, Love After the Romance Has Ended. And that was a book about couples, and that came out in 94. And then I wrote Gender and Desire, and I wrote Women and Desire, both of those books trying to talk about the difference between desire and love. And then I wrote The Self-Esteem Trap, which was about parent-child love. And um, so it's like, what? I can't stop writing about love. But what happened to me in writing The Present Heart, I went out to interview people 
who, whose work I have loved about love. And there are a couple of people in the book whom I just adore. I don't know if many of you know Cynthia Bourgio, the She's a Christian hermit and, uh, who comes out for half of the year. She's sort of a hermit. She's been divorced several times, and she fell in love with a monk, and she wrote about it in Love is Stronger Than Death. And then Abigail Thomas, who wrote Three Dog Life. I don't know if, if any of you know that book about her husband's brain injury. It's an hilarious book. Uh, and then I, I interviewed Naomi Shihab Nye about her poetry on love. I mean, I really love people who, like Leonard Cohen, actually work with the nitty-gritty of life. They don't elevate love to some sort of romantic ideal. But in going out there and talking to these people about love, Patti Smith, Just Kids, that's a great book also, um, I began to see that a lot of couples therapy I thought was going off on the wrong track. Kind of going either off on the track of attachment and attachment routines, emotionally focused couples therapy, out of Ottawa, which is where my son lives and where he was not helped by uh, emotionally focused therapy. John Gottman's work, I love the research in John Gottman's work, but the actual therapy itself is a behavioral approach, which is just another version of cognitive behavioral. Let's just adjust the behaviors this way, that way. Uh, Or nonviolent communication. Uh, I... My own therapy is, a lot of my therapy work is done with neurotic Buddhists because I live in the most Buddhist state in the country and I live in a Buddhist ghetto and everybody's pretty much a Buddhist in my area. And so these Buddhists come to see me, some of them are the teachers and some of them are practitioners, and they cannot do their relationships. They're all doing nonviolent communication. <laughs> you know, they're just not actually able to go through conflict. And so I began to look at the models that were out there, and they were either going too much into the mindfulness side of things, or they were going too much into the behavioral side, or they were going too much into the attachment side. And um, I felt like there's, that nobody was seeing that this issue of true love really requires skills in being a witness and being able to overcome the sense of taking it personally towards being able to see your partner and to work with communication and intimacy from a perspective that is similar to but not the same as a good therapist has. You know, people come to see me in therapy. Even after they're done with therapy, they'll come for years. I'll say, please, you don't have to come. And they no, no, I want to come. I like the way we investigate things. So people are paying me a lot of money to love them, where they could get it at home if there was a little expertise on that. So I began to see that that I felt we still hadn't gotten clear about what it takes to love. So true love is not the same as attachment bonds, romance. I regard romance as a psychotic illusion, maybe a delusion, or a fantasy that feels like a drug, of being fulfilled or completed by another, someone who's your perfect match. In this kind of very narcissistic period of time we're living in, people want somebody who's perfect for me, somebody that I have chemistry with. I mean, and so when they go out to look at on Match.com and OkCupid and all the other sites, because I work with a lot of wonderful women in Vermont who are looking, you know, and um, they're always looking for this chemistry thing. They're not looking for like a bigger picture like, Okay, 
You know, if he's got ex-wives, what does he say about them? Or if he's got kids, how often does he see them? Or if he's got work, how interesting is it? I mean, they're not looking from the point of view of what kind of witness is this person going to make. They're, go- they're going from projection, from an idealizing projection. When I look at him, do I get that, mm? you know? I mean, after a certain age, you don't. But, <laughs> you know, you just need to know. It's not there. You've got to build it. You've got to build it. You can build it. So true love is not the same thing as idealization either. And here's where parents often go wrong. But, you know, not only parents, but sometimes people in falling in love also. Idealization is a fanciful love that splits off the hate or the disillusionment towards another and omits the reality of the other person's limitations. When I did my parenting book and I went out and talked to parents and then educators and so on in this period of time, it's unbelievable how parents treat their children. It's like they worship their children, you know, and it's just their parenthood has become a religion and worshiping your children has become a requirement in it and everybody's supposed to worship your children, not just you. And grandparents also fall uh, on this thing too. I mean, and then showing a thousand different pictures on your telephone of your grandchildren. This stuff is boring, you know? It's, I, and a lot of times people would say to me, I have children, grandchildren, and all that. Now, be in an audience with parents, and they'd say, okay, so, you know, I tried to talk about, let's start a new conversation about parenting, that really we need to deal with our kids realistically, and we need to actually see parenting as something like we're raising citizens in the world, and there are things you can do. There are a lot of, there are lots of things now that are very, very clear about grittiness and about resilience and about discipline, and lots of things are clear. But, you know, we need to start a new conversation because people can't bear looking at this stuff straightforwardly. So the people in the audience would say, is there one thing we can do to improve our parenting? I'd say, yeah, don't boast about your children. When you get together with your friends, stop talking about your children. Just talk to your friends. And um, it was interesting how hard people would find that, you know, uh, because there is not the understanding that when you idealize your children, your grandchildren to other people, you're actually putting a little bit of harmful stuff in the environment. You're holding up your Facebook page. So other people are feeling kind of bad about their Facebook page or their non-Facebook page. You know, they're comparing themselves to your little story about how your child is in Nicaragua, you know, building houses for the poor and so on and, and uh, doing that instead of going on a wonderful vacation in Cancun or... You know, it goes on and on, the boasting. And it's subtle. It's got lots of messages in it. But when you idealize your own children, you're hurting some other people. When you believe that there is some family out there that is so much better than yours, you're hurting your family. When you think there's a partner out there that's going to be so much better for you, you're hurting yourself. And so it would be good if we stopped the idealization. Everything is broken. It's broken from the beginning. Life and death come together in the beginning of life. When life begins, death begins. They're bound together. You will lose everyone you love. You will lose everything you have. That's guaranteed. And so loving somebody will break your heart. And it will break your heart in all of the ways that you hoped it wouldn't be broken. But if you can tolerate that, this will be your spiritual path. This will be your deepening into understanding 
what love and life are really about. So dropping the idealization is a big, big plus on the road to love. Um, Desire is a longing for something that's missing, something that is wanted, or it's the feeling of restlessness or dissatisfaction for things as they are. There's a lot to say about desire. Desire is not a bad thing. Desire is a powerful thing. And so you should keep track of your desires. And especially if you're developing a sense of true love, you should keep track of what it is that you feel restless about. Um, Nine times out of ten, your desires should be feedback to you and not be feedback to your partner. So uh, again, desire is that sense of restlessness about what's missing. So love is like science. It helps us embrace the truth about another and about ourselves. To love another person, you have to be a whole self and permit your other, your beloved, to be a whole self too. This is confusing because we tend to believe we're helping our beloved child, partner, or parent by telling him or her how to change and why change is necessary. But you know in your own bones you want your beloved to know you as you are and to accept you without demanding change. Just as we come to know the natural world as it is, rather than as we imagine it or want it to be, loving another requires us to remain interested and alert to that other person just as he or she is, always willing to see him or her freshly. Now that does not mean that you have to enjoy this every minute, (laughs) or that you have to think that this is a great time, a fun time. As Ed, for example, was going through rather a long stretch when he was becoming incontinent, particularly when he was becoming incontinent with, with with his peeing, with the urine side of things, it was very, very distressing to him and me because... Um, he would suddenly have to pee. And sometimes it would happen if we were in a restaurant together. He would have to stand up and pee right away. And so racing him to a restroom or, or, or trying to find a way to find a wastebasket quickly and turn him around so people didn't see him and so on, this was very, very difficult. But I got good at it. And I got good at being able to see his facial expression. This was all before he wore diapers. He was, each, at each, each one of these developmental downsteps, he always rejected it at the beginning, and then gradually he adapted to it. But watching him carefully, I came to witness him really well. He, of course, could not do this for me. In order for me to remain a whole self, during the time that Ed was declining, by the time he got to be about four to six years old, had to stop the sexual relationship with him. No good for me. Good for him, no good for me. I was with a child. He enjoyed it, but I was with a child. So I had to check with myself. I had to look for another relationship. Finally, as Ed was, Ed did not know that, of course, because he was living in a care center and I was visiting him. And from his point of view, not only was I his wife, but he was also sleeping with the lady next door to him which really was more of a child-parent kind of thing, but in the end, that got complicated because she was very possessive of him, and she dressed him in her clothes, and the the care staff there didn't like it. And then the other ladies, all of whom liked him very much, Ed was a very good-looking guy, um, they became very, very angry at the woman who was possessive of him, and eventually she 
she was turned out of the care center. She was sent away because she took her cane one day and hit the staff person who was trying to change his clothes because she didn't want the staff person to, uh, to touch him. She was taking care of him. So there were lots and lots of things that happened that I was a witness to. In order to remain as a witness and be a whole self, not to be resentful, not to be diminished, I had to take care of myself and recognize my needs. Uh, just like um, uh, in uh, the uh, uh, memoir, uh, Midnight at Noon, um, which is uh, Charles Mingus's uh, widow's memoir, she talks about her relationship to the jazz artist Charles Mingus. She fell in love with him. He was a terrible alcoholic and a drug addict, but she loved him. She loved him just as he was. She loved his energy. She loved his music. But she couldn't live with him. So she had to install him in this house, and she installed herself and her children over in this house. And they had to kind of go back and forth to preserve their love until there was a point at which he decided he would be able to rein in some of his behaviors, and eventually they were able to live in the same house. But to preserve love, love on a two-way street, It's got to be whole self to whole self. And there has to be truth about it. There can't be the pretending. Or, you know, I'm going to pretend that this is true for me. No, you're going to sort of sense what works for you. How does this work? How does this work for your beloved? Love is mutual and reciprocal, a two-way street. In order for love to be true, it has to be love on a two-way street. Both people are vulnerable to it, and both people can rise to its demands, and this is rare. And uh, when I did this set of slides, because some of this comes from uh, the present heart set, um, I had not yet begun to work on the idea that the rareness of true love can be compensated for by the skills that we can develop. So it's rare that you just happen onto it, but the skills can be developed so that you can begin to do it in your life as you are. So Milos, Sesla Milos, in his poem called Love, says love means to learn to look at yourself the way one looks at distant things. For you are only one thing among many, and whoever sees that way heals his heart without knowing it from various ills. A bird and a tree say to him, friend. So um, the kind of skills that we develop in order to love, allow us to look at ourselves more objectively, that is, more reflectively, with a little bit of distance about who we are, and also to look at our beloved in that same way, to begin to see who is my beloved and what kinds... I'm in a new relationship now, and I'm with a man who is a Kleinian analyst, and if you know anything about the Kleinians, they're tough folks, and he's a tough... He's tough. Compared to Ed, he's not at all like Ed. And I am having to learn to love somebody who is really different, somebody that I met on a website who was much of his life in Los Angeles and then in New York City uh, and who lives with me now in Vermont, but he still has uh, a place in New York City. And learning to love Robert, uh, he's the last chapter in the present heart, Um, has been a real process for me because it wasn't the kind of love that I had with Ed. It wasn't that kind of click that Ed and I had, which is, oh, there you are. 
Uh, with Robert, it was more like, how do you do? And getting to know him in a, in a very different way. I just stepped on something, folks. Um, it's a telephone, I think. Is Benjamin in the room? Oh, you're in the room. There's... I think I, I think I hung it up okay. All right, I won't do that again. All right, I did it. I fixed it, I think. Um, so, love's number one enemy is idealization. And I think we've already covered this pretty much. Parents idealize their children. Children idealize their parents. Romance demands idealization. Romantic comedy feeds on it. Pornography creates idealized and controlled objects. And idealization is our control of the object of our desire so that it does not become real and limited. So that is the opposite of love. Does that make sense? Because I'm going to sweep through this now to the nature of reality. Let me just see what the next slide is after that. Okay. 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 Um, before we do the slide um, from Buddhism and the teachings on reality, uh, just a few lines from a poem, wonderful poem by Derek Walcott called Odd Job, a Bull Terrier. And whether we bear it for beast, for child, for woman or friend, it is the one love, it is the same. And it is blessed deepest by loss. It is blessed, it is blessed. And basically what Walcott is saying in the poem is that it is the loss of the beloved that you know will be there from the beginning that allows you to truly and deeply accept the particularity of this being with all of the limitations, with all of the weaknesses, with all of the addictions and habits and so on, that you begin to appreciate. And with Ed, I have to say that I would never have wanted Ed to get early-onset Alzheimer's. But the experience that we had in going through that time, that 10-year time, and also the way that he died, which was extraordinary, and he was conscious, and he was looking into my eyes, and all that I learned from all the Buddhist practices that I took up in regard to conscious dying while Ed was ill, all of that was so rich that I cannot imagine uh, my life without it. So even though it resulted in Ed dying, and I would never have asked for a any of it, it also has added the richness to my life that I don't think I would have had otherwise. Uh, and so when you recognize the particularity of the person, or the pet even, or the child or the parent, you love that parent for their faults, not in spite of their faults. And uh, with my parents, I have to say, um, my mother, who has often been the focus of a lot of my uh, lectures about love, <laughs> my um, thoughts about love, I've come to see her so differently 
in these last 15 years, both of my parents actually, um, but uh, with my mother especially because I had, through my adult life, been so rejected by her that I was hurt a lot. But ultimately I felt that she was, she, she was hurt so much more and that I was such a bad match for her. It was like she had some child who'd come off of an alien planet and wanted to study, you know, things like Jung that she called Jung, and <laughs> Buddhism that she'd never heard of, and wanted to do all of these things that she had never heard of. And she had put so much effort into this child, and I was her only child. Uh, she had, you know, cared for me and prayed over me and assumed I would be her best friend for the rest of her life. And instead, I went off and did all this stuff. And she never could enjoy it, and she didn't really enjoy my children either. And so I now really feel a great tenderness towards her and feel how sad it was that she wasn't able to get the benefits um, while I was able to get the benefits of her love when I was a child. So um, the path of love is laced with loss, and it is not something that you you say, oh, uh, I'm going to... uh, fall in love, but I'm going to protect myself from heartache. It's like, good luck. <laughs> you know, that has nothing to do with love. Um, one thing that, that people do do, though, is a series of romances. There are people who protect themselves from heartache by doing the romance, which is like the drug. And they, they just take the drug, and they go through until the disillusionment starts, and then they take another drug, and so on. In the end, it produces a lot of alienation, but... Uh, on the way, it might seem like it's fun. It's what Jung calls the life of the puer or the puella. So um, I'm going to talk now a little bit about the nature of reality. We've mentioned reality. Oh, I have to say about the time. So it's close to um, 3.30. We were supposed to take a break at 3.30, is that correct? Or 15 minutes? Okay. So what I think I'm going to do this... Uh, I'm going to try to, uh, in this brief time, give you these three components of reality from a Buddhist perspective. And then when we come back, maybe I can take questions on what I've said thus far. Um, So we're talking about love in the context of life and reality. And we're talking about love as actually an investigation of reality in relation to a particular human being another person. And now we're going to talk about reality from a Buddhist perspective. Now, I have been studying Buddhism, as I said, since 1970. And I have been teaching, this is called the marks of of existence. In Buddhism, these three um, qualities are called the marks of existence. And so these are the marks of the mundane world that we're in. I have never um, questioned this view of the world, even though... As a psychologist, I'm a constructivist, and we don't usually talk about reality. We talk about realities. But from this perspective, I believe that this is comprehensive of the way it is here in this world. So this first quality is called dukkha, and that's often translated as suffering, but that is a wrong translation. Dukkha cannot easily be translated into English, and it refers to a quality of experience. 
And that quality is being off-center, like a bone that's out of the socket or a wheel that's off the axle. It's thrown. And so dukkha is this quality of things not working very well. And that is the quality of the world we live in. We can never solve the problems of this world. Have you noticed? You know, you probably have noticed. If you look around, you see, oh, just one thing after another seems to get worse. Or we solve this little problem, and then a whole big one comes along. So we get rid of DDT, and there's more malaria in Africa. You know, and there's just there's countless stuff like this. And that is because of this world. We cannot get things aligned in this world. Things do not line up. It's the nature of reality. So the nature of this world is dukkha. The Buddha, after his supreme enlightenment, was one of the first things he said was, this is dukkha. This that we're in, this is dukkha. So everybody here is limited, imperfect, unsatisfactory, you know, out of it in some way. And it's not the result of just somebody's family or the trauma that they grew up with or the trauma of their generation because there would have been trauma in the generation before and the generation before. We have here, where we are, a huge heap of imperfectness. And it's all broken before you start it. It's already broken. And so if you think you're going to straighten it out, get it perfect, get it right, and keep it under control, you will be pretty depressed, maybe despairing, maybe alienated, maybe ashamed, maybe full of blame. But all of those things that you come up with as a reaction to the imperfectness of your life will create more dukkha. They will create more imbalance. So if you recognize that the world that you're in is fundamentally unsatisfactory, that leads to anguish, stress, discontent, restlessness, gaps, confusion, and off-centeredness, something Heidegger called thrownness, then you've got a good start. (laughs) It's like then you're accepting things as they are instead of pushing the river in the wrong direction. So first principle then is that this world is dukkha. Second principle, easier to say in English, this world is anicca. Anicca is there's ceaseless change going on. Things are impermanent at all levels of existence. We know this now from our physics, from our highest science. We know that everything is changing all of the time. Things like this that appear to be stable, they're not stable. The rock that appears to be stable is not stable. There is nothing stable and secure in this world. If you try to make something stable and secure in this world, good luck with that. It won't work. It creates more dukkha. So again, if you recognize this is the nature of the world. So, you know, Jack Kornfield, Buddhist teacher, tells a story about a 95-year-old woman that he knew who went to the doctor and found out that she had a terminal illness. And she said to the doctor, why is this happening to me? <laughs> you know? I mean, people really do protect themselves from the fact that, you know, there's the uh, second law of thermodynamics here. Everything turns to shit. This world is going out itself. The entire thing is impermanent. Impermanent from its beginnings. 
So whatever you think you have, you don't have. And we're in a period of time right now where this stuff really bothers people. It seems to bother people more than it used to, I think, when people lived closer to nature and they could see the seasons and they could see the crops and all of that. But now people like want control, and control seems to me to be the big problem. You know, it's like control of this and control of that, and so there's a grasping onto all sorts of everything from youth to thinness to athletic ability to money and things and um, and spirituality and whatever else. So that desire to hold something and control it, good idea to get rid of that. It won't help you. This is not the world you're in. This third quality of... Um, so let me just say one more thing about Anicca. Anicca in Buddhism was first thought to be at the, at the cause of dukkha, and then it became part of the um, solution to dukkha. So, you know, if things are really distressing right now, they will change. So they will also get better, and then they'll get worse again, and so on. Um, so anatta is this third quality, and this is where the Buddha, in some ways, departs from Jung. We haven't gotten to Jung very much, but uh, the sense that Jung had about the self sometimes gets talked about as like Atman. And the Buddha's teaching here is on Atman. It is the no-self, the bad translation, but what this refers to is that in this world, things are no things. Things are not things because they can never be apart from what they're embedded in. So even though I appear to myself to have thingness, to be a particular body, to be separated from you, I'm embedded in a context right here where we can't draw separations. And if you look at your life, all along in your life, Anytime you appear in your life, whether you appear in a dream or your waking life, or you're in a context. You're never just there, separate from everything. So everything is embedded with everything else. Everything is essentially an interbeing, more radical than interdependence. So all phenomena are contextualized, heavily contextualized. And in your context, in your everyday life, your beloveds are a big part of your context. And when your beloved dies, gets ill, runs away, commits suicide, betrays you, that changes the context of your life. And if you don't change when that context changes, you will be alienated from your life. So anatta has lots of different meanings, lots of different teachings associated with it, but one of the teachings that's easiest to get is that you are in a context moment to moment, and you have regular contexts in your life, and when your deep context changes, you have to change too, because you're in that context. So self and no self are bound together. It's like there wouldn't be a context without the self, and there wouldn't be no self without a self. So self and context bound together, and we're all embedded in these contexts. And because of that, uh, I won't go into that. We'll take a break. 
podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.youngchicago.org.